Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Malachi, to which we now turn. We do pray as we read through Malachi 2 that you would convict and move, that your spirit would make this word come alive, that you would uh, convince non-believers now of your goodness, kindness, your goodness as a, a good husband, and that you would help us to perceive your, your body, your church, your sanctuary. And those of us who know you, we, we ask that you would convict us, that we would tremble at the thought of profaning it. Grant us to fear rightly. We do ask that you would use Malachi now to be the means of giving us the promise that we open the service with, that your ransom will return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Use Malachi now to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite everyone to turn with me to the book of Malachi. I'm going to be in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. When I say I invite, that is my nice way of saying it. You, you need to turn to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 10 through 16, and we need to have our eyes on the text. We'll be listening and seeing what God is saying to us as we continue this sermon series. I'll read it together for us as you turn there. Malachi 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. I hate the one who divorces, says the Lord God of Israel, and then covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Last week in Malachi 2, at the beginning, verses 1 through 9, God addressed the priests and rebuked them for their failure to teach the people the word faithfully. In their, capacitor as, in their capacity as mediators, they were supposed to lead the people in true worship and ultimately to life and peace in covenant with God. Earlier in Malachi 1, God had rebuked both the priests and the people for their costless worship. The people were bringing defiled, cheap sacrifices, and the priests were allowing it. Together they had corrupted the covenant, and God took no pleasure in their worship. Our passage this morning seems to shift topics. There, there is a shift, but the shift is not so stark as we might be prone to think. 
You see, there, there's a dichotomy in the modern American mind between worship and ethics. Worship is about religion, which is private and personal. You're almost not supposed to talk to people about their religion in polite conversation. Talking about religion can be a very touchy subject. How you worship? I mean, there can't be anything more private than that. Ethics, on the other hand, is about moral principles of right and wrong, and the public is very interested in your ethics. You should be concerned about the ethics of the companies you work for, patronize. People should care about whether uh, these places are green or fair trade or sufficiently supportive of racial diversity or social justice or LGTB issues. This is a normal part of public discourse today. Ethics matter. Your friends aren't supposed to lie to you. You aren't supposed to steal. People are supposed to be faithful and trustworthy. The public is all about talking about ethics. That is very different than worship. You can worship what you want, however you want, and it is nobody's business. The public has no right to comment on your worship, and you have no right to bring your worship into commenting on the public. You need to keep your worship out of ethics. That's one of the reoccurring themes we've seen in uh, all the signs uh, in the recent pro-abortion protests against the Dobbs decision overturning Roe. Keep your God out of the discussion. Stop imposing your private religion on matters of ethics. That is actually what is unethical. Many professing Christians also make that dichotomy in the other direction. Keep ethics out of worship. How I live my life in private is none of the church's business, does not affect my devotion or my relationship with God. My relationship with God is private and personal, and my worship is personal, so you keep your discussion of ethics out of it. You could say that in chapter 2, verse 10, Malachi shifts from the topic of worship to ethics. In our previous two passages, Malachi was concerned with how the people were performing their corporate worship, their temple worship, and the official priestly ministry in the temple. But now he turns to address the people and their faithfulness to each other socially. But Malachi does not separate worship and ethics. For Malachi, indeed, for all of the Bible, worship and ethics are inseparable. To be a Christian, you must recognize that you cannot separate the two. If you're not a Christian, you have to recognize that Christians cannot separate the two. Really, neither should you. Worship and ethics are united, and their influence moves in both ways. Your worship affects your ethics, and your ethics affect your worship. This morning, we're going to consider that two-way connection between ethics and worship in Malachi. And then we're going to focus on the two uh, related ethical issues that he focuses on. So look again at the passage. Notice how it opens up in verse 10 with this rhetorical question, which is meant to give teeth to the rebuke that's coming. Have we not all one Father? Implied answer, yes. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The very foundation for the rebuke is their relationship with God. But the rebuke itself is about their faithlessness to each other. Their 
treachery. This, this is a strong word. If faithless sounds mild to you, think betrayal. But the problem Malachi addresses is their treachery. When the people betray each other, they profane their covenant with God. And notice how this is worked out as we continue in verse 11. Judah has been faithless, has been a betrayer, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Not just the covenant in a general sense, but the sanctuary is profaned by Judah's betrayal. The temple, the outer courts, the inner court of the temple, the holy place where the worship was performed, the sacrifices, the music worship, the ritual cleansing, the space where all of that happens, where God specially manifested his presence. It is profaned, it's dirtied, it's ruined by the people's betrayal that was happening outside the sanctuary. Think about that. What happened outside the sanctuary was affecting what was happening inside. And then in verse 12, Malachi, in Malachi's prayer for judgment, which we'll talk more about later, we read, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this and brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The one who betrays and then brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You see, the crime is not just considered in and of itself. It is considered in connection with the people also bringing their offerings. God cut off the one who betrays his neighbor and then brings an offering. Your betrayal makes your offering offensive and actually a cause for judgment. In verses 13 through 16, Malachi again keeps worship front and center in the ethical rebuke. Verses 13 to 14, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. You're in the temple. You're at the altar with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been treacherous, to whom you have betrayed. They participate in public worship at the altar, weeping over the lack of acceptance of their offering. And the reason for God's rejection of their worship is because of their treachery to each other. And then the passage, I think, closes with this very same issue, but uses very stark language. Look at verse 16. I hate the one who divorces, says the Lord God of Israel, and then covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you are eyes on the Bible and you are reading the ESV, our pew Bibles are ESV, and you're paying close attention, you will notice that I have gone with the footnote reading. The main text of the ESV reads, For the man who does not love his wife, literally in Hebrew, hates, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Then you have a footnote with the alternate reading. Verse 16 is admittedly the most difficult verse in Malachi from a translation perspective. The syntax is tricky, and I will skip the boring details. But the main two questions are, who is doing the hating, the divorcing party, or God? And what is the relationship between the divorce and the second clause, covering his garment with violence? 
Either the man is hating his wife in the act of divorce, which parallels Deuteronomy 24, which talks about a man hating his wife and writing her a certificate of divorce, or God is the one doing the hating, and what he hates is the man's betrayal in the divorce. Now, despite the parallel to Deuteronomy 24, which is really just the topic and the word hate, there's not much here in, in the syntax to make it seem like the wife is the one being hated. In fact, there is no word for wife in Hebrew in this verse. It literally just says, he hates, comma, to divorce. To interpret it as the man doing the hating, you have to insert an implied wife. He hates his wife, implied, and so he divorces her, implied. The verb hate has no object in Hebrew unless the object is the action of divorcing. I think it's much more natural to take this as God hating what is being done in the divorce. The betrayal in the divorce by the man sending his wife away. But then what does it mean that he covers his garment with violence? Is this something that the man does by divorcing his wife? As in, God hates the one who divorces his wife and so covers his garment with violence? Or is this something the person is doing in addition to divorcing his wife? As in, two separate actions. God hates the one who divorces his wife and covers his garment with violence. I, I, I think it's the latter option. Because the key question is, what, what does this mean? What does it mean to cover one's garment with violence? This is not a common Hebrew idiom. In fact, it only appears here in Malachi. We don't have anywhere else to go to get a sense of it. If we say that one divorces his wife is the act of covering his garment with violence, it's hard to know exactly what's being communicated by that phrase. I mean, it, it doesn't sound nice, but is, is that just the point? Is he's doing a bad thing? However, if we take it more literally, it makes perfect sense in context. The word violence is more graphic than we sometimes use the English word violence. Sometimes violence is just a synonym for action. My mom used to say, Power Rangers is violent. But uh, that's not what this word means when it is used in the Bible. Power Rangers is not this kind of violence. This is not just punching and kicking. It is death and gore and bloodshed. This word is often paralleled with spilt blood. God promises in Joel to judge Egypt and Edom for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. The people in Malachi were covering their garments with bloodshed. This makes perfect sense in context because remember, we're talking about the altar, the sanctuary. We've been talking about sacrifices the entire time. And remember, there's no chapter and verse divisions in the original. The entire context, especially for this ethical exhortation, has been about its relationship to sacrificial worship. And when you sacrificed animals, you got blood on you. Remember, the priest guided you through the sacrifice, but you did the actual killing, whoever brought the animal. You would get blood on you. And depending on the particular sacrifice, you get more blood sprinkled on you as part of the ritual. And if you were the priest, you got lots of blood on you when you butchered the animal in preparation for the cooking and the offering. Sacrifice was bloody. What Malachi is saying here is God hates the one who betrays his wife and then comes and sacrifices in worship. And the reason God uses the language he does is to show how starkly our ethics transform our worship in his eyes. Your sacrifice is no longer a pleasing aroma. 
It is, an occasion, it is not an occasion for celebration or fellowship with God. Now it's just you covered in violence. Now it's just you covered in blood. You might as well have just murdered your neighbor. That's how God views the blood on the people's clothing in worship when they have betrayed their neighbors. God says exactly this in Isaiah. In rebuking empty worship, God says, He who slaughters an ox, he who brings a sacrifice, is like one who kills a man. That's the point. God hates the one who betrays his wife and then comes for sacrifice. In God's eyes, you might as well have committed murder instead of a sacrifice. This is the point. Our ethics, our relationships with each other are interlaced at every point in this section with our worship to God. Because God cares about both. They are intertwined. You cannot say you care about worship if you do not care about your faithlessness in matters relating to your neighbor. God will not have it. And God will not have it, actually, because the, worship, the, the relationship works in the other direction. Our covenantal relationship to God, our, our, our personal relationship to God, our religion, our worship, it underlies any concept of ethics or morality that we could possibly have. Right? That's the basis of the rebuke in verse 10. It's the relationship to God. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? In other words, our ethical obligations to each other stem from our relationship to God. If you remove the fatherhood of God, if you remove recognition of our Creator from your ethical philosophizing, you undercut the brotherhood of man. You delete the image of God in men, the value of people, and you remove the foundation of any idea of should or oughtness in our relationship to each other. In an atheistic world, we owe each other nothing. And regardless of what we profess with our mouths, we often live like functional atheists. We often live like we owe each other nothing. We live like we aren't in covenant with God. And here's why it is so tragic for the church. We don't have a physical sanctuary. This isn't a sanctuary. This is an auditorium. Our building here isn't a temple. The temple in the Old Testament was a symbol, a prophetic symbol. God making himself specially present in the temple was how God foreshadowed his coming to live in his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you, plural, you all, the church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Again in 2 Corinthians, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The church, the people, we are the temple of the living God. Grace Covenant Baptist Church is not this building. You are Grace Covenant Baptist Church, and we happen to meet in this building. We are. The people are God's sanctuary. And as Malachi says in verse 11 of our text, 
God loves his sanctuary. God loves his church. He loves his bride. The foundation for all all our ethics in the church is love. And the foundation for our love to each other is the love God has for us. As the Apostle John so eloquently put it in his first epistle, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God demonstrated his love for his people by sending Jesus to die, to be the propitiation, to take the punishment they deserve so that they could be free from all fear of wrath and condemnation that they would otherwise justly deserve. And if we know forgiveness for our sin, if we know freedom from condemnation because of the love of God to us in Jesus, we should love one another. When we betray each other, when we only look out for ourselves, when we act like we owe each other nothing, we taint our witness. We deny our master and we profane the church, the body that we have all been brought into, in membership into. We profane God's sanctuary. Now, for the rest of our time, we want to be faithful to the text by considering the ways we profane the sanctuary of God, the church, his people, our worship, the ways that we are faithless and treacherous that Malachi highlights. And in in verse 10, he casts the issue generally. Why then are we faithless to one another? But as the passage goes on, Malachi really focuses in on the issue of marriage and two marriage-related ways that the people were profaning the sanctuary. If we want to do justice to God's rebuke, we have to hear it in the specifics. So for the rest of our time, we will consider the two marriage-related forms of treachery one at a time, then we'll close by uh, making some clarifications and one big application. So let's look again. The first issue is the issue of marriage outside the covenant community. Peek again at verse 11. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Remember, we're speaking in a collective here. So in other words, the people of Judah were marrying their pagan neighbors. They were entering into marriage covenants, uniting families with those who did not belong to the people of Yahweh. We know, as we heard from the historical books in Ezra this morning and also Nehemiah, which cover roughly this time period, this was indeed a problem for the people. As we mentioned, you have to understand, this is not racism. It's not ethnocentrism. God is not upset because the people were marrying people with the wrong skin color. It's not about race, but it is all about faith. Many foreigners did become the people of God throughout the Old Testament. We have key important examples, such as Ruth. We have provisions specifically made in the Levitical law for outsiders joining the community. We saw in Isaiah this morning, one of the trajectories of salvation history that the prophets traced and looked forward to was the inclusions of all nations in the covenant people, the salvation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. You will be a blessing to all nations. So God is not against interracial marriage. 
But God is against Christians marrying outside the faith. God is against his people marrying outside the covenant community. Why is that? I mean, honestly, this isn't one of those hard-to-understand rules. This isn't one of those laws that we puzzle over and think, why would God command that? Actually, a passage we already quoted from Paul elaborates on this very type of issue. In 2 Corinthians, in the passage we quoted about the church as the temple of God, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. This is commonly applied to marriage and for good reason. The logic is airtight when we really stop and give just a moment's thought to what it means to be a Christian and to what marriage is. To be a Christian is to be called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To recognize His glory and live for the fame of His name as we have seen over and over in Malachi. God is not a side dish to your life. Christianity is not an additive. It is not a box that you check on a form, a portion of your identity. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We profess that Jesus is Lord, and we have been gifted a ministry of worshiping Jesus with our whole lives and being priestly witnesses to the non-believing world. We have a commission from our master that is supposed to joyfully dominate our entire lives. To live is Christ. So then couple that with what marriage is. Covenant partnership for life. Two people coming together, becoming one, and building a life together. We cannot serve two masters. It is simply not possible to confess the lordship of Christ and marry someone who does not and and expect those not to conflict at the deepest possible levels. We're not talking about separatism. We're not talking about not being friends with non-believers, not doing business with non-believers. Quite the contrary. Paul says we're not supposed to separate from non-believers and live in little Christian communes. We are supposed to love our non-believing neighbor. We're not supposed to pull away from the world. But marriage is a partnership of the closest kind. You cannot choose a partner in life, one with whom you are going to build a life, singular, a life, right? That's how we say Not two separate lives, but a life. And then say that your life will be about glorifying Jesus when your partner in building that life rejects Jesus. You cannot serve wholeheartedly Jesus as your master. You cannot make him the center of your life when you take on strict covenantal obligations of partnership, love, and friendship with someone who does not care about Jesus. It would be kind of like if you wanted to to open a butcher shop and so you went into business with someone who was a vegan who thought killing animals and eating meat was wrong. Business is going to be tough. Notice all of this is framed in terms of a type of treachery to, the one, to one another, to members of the covenant community. Marrying someone who rejects Jesus is a type of unfaithfulness to the church at large. It is unfaithfulness to your local church. Just as Paul said, those who are married have more obligations that can distract in general. Those who marry a non-believer now literally have non-believing obligations. 
you will be drawn away from the church. You might try not to, but you will not be able to avoid being pulled away. Maybe not completely, but you will be much less involved and fruitful than you otherwise would be, and that hurts everyone. By marrying someone who rejects Jesus, you bind yourself to obligations outside of Christ and thus minimize the effectiveness of your ministry, both the amount of ministry that you can actually do and the quality. You do not just sin against yourself. You sin against every other member of the church with this type of unfaithfulness. To the unmarried, guard your heart. Do not entertain romantic affection or attachment with those outside the covenant community. It will pull you away. It is a type of betrayal of Jesus and his people. It is a profaning of his sanctuary. Pray that God would guard you in temptation in times of loneliness. Pray that God would bring you a faithful believer to marry. We have prayed for spouses in this church, and God has answered. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that unfaithfulness to Christ and the church is the only way you will know romantic love. Young person, children, choose today whom you will serve. If you find yourself drawn in faith to Jesus, if you find the gospel compelling and the glory of God beautiful, do not look outside his people for the love and companionship that your hearts may be longing for or shortly will long for. God responds to this betrayal of his people, this self-cutting off from the church with a final cutting off. For those who persist in casual, indifferent betrayal of God and his people without repenting, all the while offering outward worship, Malachi prays in verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. That's the language of covenant termination. That is a threat of final judgment for those who are indifferent to covenantal obligations to God and Christ, even while they profess faith. This is not a warning to those who married an unbeliever or who even find themselves married to an unbeliever and who recognize the brokenness of the situation and the sin that may have led to it. God is merciful to those in such mixed marriages and God often delights to save the unbeliever through the witness of the believing spouse. Such is the hope of staying married to them in Peter and Paul's counsel in the New Testament. This verse is a warning to those who do not see a problem with mixed allegiances. This is a warning to those who reject that fa- the idea that faithfulness to Christ demands undivided loyalty. This is a warning to those who reject any idea of needing to be faithful to Christ and his church and who boldly continue in defending their right to marry outside the covenant. The people were doing this, present tense. They were continuing to do this in Malachi's day. It was not a thing of the past. It was a present attitude and practice to which he prayed, God, destroy this wicked indifference. Judge those who would so openly and brazenly profane your sanctuary with no shame. The second marriage-related form of treachery that our passage deals with is the issue of divorce. Look again with me at verses 13 through 16. The second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. I hate the one who divorces, says the Lord God of Israel, and then covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God rejects their worship because they have betrayed the wives of their youth. In other words, the wives they married when they were young. They've left them. They've sent them away. The text does not give us a specific reason they were doing this. Some interpreters unite this with the previous section and see the men as divorcing their old wives so they could marry the new pagan wives. Possibly true, probably did happen. We also know just from our culture, people are unfaithful to marital vows for all sorts of reasons. You find someone younger, prettier, more desirable in some way. And often our culture glamorizes this. It's not because you're a traitorous cur that you leave your wife or husband. It's because you found your real love. The previous relationship was actually dark and bleak, but now that you have found your real love, the world is bright and beautiful. You have betrayed the wife of your youth. Generally speaking, people married much earlier in ancient Israel and indeed in the whole ancient Near East. There was a, a Talmud proverb that says, a man was cursed if he wasn't married by 20. Don't worry, we don't care about the Talmud. It's not binding on us in any way, and I think everyone in this room knew that curse. But still, if you're getting married that young, all the more time for you to grow tired of your wife to get to that point where you say, I no longer care about being faithful to you. Whatever the reason, the people in Malachi's day had a problem with abandoning their wives. Their wives. I mean, look at how Malachi talks about marriage. It's arguably the highest description of marriage in the Old Testament. Admittedly, in many places in the Old Testament, when they talk about marriage, they just kind of assume you understand what marriage is. There's very little exposition of the marriage relationship. But here, Malachi tells us, your wife is your companion, your covenant partner. You have made a solemn vow, an oath that binds you to this person. You have made vows. You have literal obligations. Not just legal obligations. You have spiritual obligations. Did he not make them one? Who? Who made them one? God. God did something to make you one. Not just a judge, but God has tied the cords of this covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in his union, in their union? And what was the one seeking? Godly offspring. The point here is that the whole idea of godly offspring is threatened with a husband's betrayal of his wife. The offspring God wants is not just physical offspring. He wants godly offspring. The children of the covenant are not simply those who are born to Christian families, but those who themselves repent and believe and who are grafted into Christ. As Christian parents, we are called to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We are to raise offspring with an eye to them being godly offspring, followers of the Lord Jesus. When we are treacherous in our marriages, this either prevents children from existing altogether or it leaves lasting damage and scars on the children. We mar our witness to our children. We ruin our witness to the ones closest to us when we betray each other, particularly when husbands callously betray their wives for whatever reason. 
Our kids see how we love and act, and they see how that harmonizes or does not harmonize with the gospel we preach. That's why God hates divorce. That's the transition to verse 16. He hates it because divorce coupled with worship is a bad witness. In verse 16, God calls Yahweh the God of Israel. It is the only time he calls him that in the entire book. The God of Israel. He calls him that when he's talking about divorce. Why? Why God of Israel here? This title focuses on God's unique relationship to his people. He is the covenant God of Israel, the people whom he named and loved. He's not just the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven. He is your God, your covenant head, your husband, your friend. God is a husband to his people. Christ is a husband to his church. And Christ is a good husband. Our marriages are supposed to be little pictures, little living parables of Christ and the church. And when men abandon their wives and fail to serve and protect them, it is a bad witness. We lie about who God is. We lie about what kind of husband Christ is. We get in the way of godly offspring. We pollute our gospel proclamation, both to our children and to our neighbors. The godly offspring that we produce here at Grace Covenant Baptist Church will be all those who hear and believe based on our proclamation of the gospel, child or otherwise. When we betray each other, when we marry outside the covenant, when we are faithless to our spouses, and then we come and we sing and offer sacrifices of praise to God, we muddy our gospel proclamation. We profane this sanctuary. We're going to close with a few clarifications, a couple clarifications, and one main application. We've been making application along the way, but one main application. Clarification number one. Verse 16 does not say that God hates divorced people. It says he hates faithless abandonment and sacrifice paired together. Again, we see this idea throughout Isaiah. At one point God says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations, holy festivals. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, I don't want your worship Verse 16 is not saying that divorced people cannot be saved. And it is not saying that there are, can be no victims in divorce. Obviously, the exact opposite is true. In this passage, betrayal is highlighted. Unfaithfulness to the wives of their youth. The wives who were betrayed are the innocent party as far as the sin in this text is concerned. There can be victims. People who are the innocent party as far as their divorce is concerned. Clarification 2. This text is not saying that you cannot have these types of sins in your past and be saved. You can have committed deep treachery. You can have married a non-believer and have abandoned your spouse and not be outside the hope of the gospel. Because the hope of the gospel is the hope of a great high priest. As we considered from Malachi last week, Jesus mediates on behalf of sinners. He turns people from their iniquity his priestly sacrifice and his prayers on your behalf will cover your sin, will free you from the punishment you, from, you deserve, and free you from the power of any lingering treachery in your heart. And day by day, as you walk with him in faith, that lingering treachery will slowly be put to death, so that eventually, one day, when you see Jesus face to face, it will be gone, and your heart will be totally clean. 
Jesus invites those with betrayal in their past. He calls those in broken marriages. He cries out to the divorcers and the betrayers, come, be saved, be healed. If you come to him in faith, he will represent you in the law courts of heaven, arguing on your behalf in all your brokenness. And Jesus the priest never loses a case. What this text is warning against is those who would dare to separate their ethics from their worship. This text is a warning to those who presently would claim with outward acts of worship to be part of God's covenant community and who would nurse treacherous hearts without thought or care, who have no problem marrying outside the covenant and who have no problem abandoning their spouses when they found someone better and who think that God doesn't have a problem with it either. This text is a warning that our profession of faith should govern our ethics in the world and that our ethics in the world God takes into account in our worship. Christians cannot separate ethics from worship or worship from ethics. Finally, our main application. We made some applications along the way, but we're going to close with this. This application of warning repeated twice in our text. At the end of verse 15, Guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Again, at the end of verse 16. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. Brothers and sisters, you listen to Malachi. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. You know, I I mentioned to some brothers last week that I, I had a struggle with this text. As I looked at it, I didn't know what it was, but as I looked at it, I anticipated difficulty in preaching it, and I wasn't quite sure why. It wasn't particularly difficult to understand. I mean, there's the tricky grammar, verse 16, but that wasn't at all on my mind as I felt hesitant. And it wasn't until midway through the week that it hit me why I felt a slight unease about preaching this text. It was when Paul, our Paul, not Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul, was talking about preaching things that people already knew at Wednesday night Bible study. We were reading how Peter resolved to remind his readers of things they already knew. And Paul was talking about how sometimes in discipleship or teaching ministry, we feel uh, embarrassed to tell people what they already know. Or like we ought to be saying something new or, or revolutionary. And it hit me right then and there. That's it. That was, that was the reason for my unease about preaching this text. Because to my eyes, this is a room full of good marriages. I know we're not perfect. We, we, we all know we're not perfect. No need to raise your hand and tell on your spouse. Like, Pastor, you do not know about this one sitting next to me. Like, Carrie, we get it. You've got Tim. It's totally understandable. There are struggles and difficulties in marriage. But as we look around at fellow congregants, our friends, our brothers and sisters, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, like, we don't need to tell these people not to abandon their spouses. I mean, this is the sixth commandment. They know this. I don't need to tell these people not to betray their wives or husbands. I don't need to tell Mike to be faithful to Victoria. I don't need to tell Lori not to abandon Paul. Then Thursday, the day after Bible study, received some news about uh, Eric, a former pastor from Georgia. In the news, I don't think anyone here knows Eric, but many of you know of him. This Thursday, this past week, Eric was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Subsequent lifetime parole for raping a 14-year-old child that was under his pastoral care. That was only one of more than 30 people that he raped or sexually abused. He will probably still stand trial for more of those crimes yet. 
Oh, consider the timing of God. This week it is time to preach Malachi 2, 10 through 16, and this is the news on Thursday. Eric was my friend. Eric was the first man that I ever would have described as a godly husband and father. Eric was the first person whom I considered an example of godliness and exemplary in ministry. First person I wanted to emulate. He gave me my first preaching opportunities, my first teaching opportunities. He pastored the first church that I submitted to in membership, and he married me. To this day, years later, I have spent more time in his home than in any other home besides my own. Cut to Friday morning, and I'm reading letters that his wife and children wrote to the judge asking for the maximum sentence. I ask permission to share some of this with you because, brothers, this is what is at stake. From a letter one of his daughters wrote, I'm sitting here planning out my wedding. I keep remembering back to when I was a little girl, and the happiest thing I could think of as a four-year-old was the picture in my mind of you walking me down the aisle someday, giving me away to a man who was just like my daddy. And now I am writing a letter trying to ask the judge to give you a longer sentence. Countless times I have called my fiancé crying. It was not supposed to be like this. You weren't supposed to be like this. Fathers are supposed to be there for their daughters. Husbands are supposed to keep their vows to their wives. Pastors are supposed to be a light to the world, but you didn't do any of that. Where were you when mom cried herself to sleep every night? Another one of his children writes, A father is supposed to love, protect, and care for his children. He's supposed to love his wife and be a godly example and point his family towards Christ. When I needed someone to teach me and support me and lead me to Christ, dad wasn't there. Instead, he was chasing after other women who were not his wife and raping girls who weren't even 18 years old. A pastor is supposed to lead and protect those under his care. They're supposed to be a light to those around them, leading them to Christ, teaching them not just with their words, but also by their example. They're supposed to be married and stay faithful to one wife. My dad did not. Brothers and sisters, this is what is at stake. Sometimes, in my eyes, you may not seem like you need a warning. Sometimes we don't think we need warning. Sometimes we feel, I don't need a warning. Sometimes you may not feel like you need a warning, but God sees better than any of us do, and the God who sees warns the people to whom he also says, I have loved you. God's love still underlies his warnings. God's love is part of the warp and woof of the whole book of Malachi. He warns the people he loves. It's part of how he loves them. He warns us this morning in Malachi. He warns those who profess faith in his son falsely because he loves his people and he will fight to defend them. And he warns those who profess faith in Jesus genuinely because he loves his people and he will fight to refine them. Brothers and sisters, guard your marriages. Fight for sexual purity. Wrestle with the remnants of your flesh. Fight the treachery that still exists in your heart. You have to put a guard on your spirit. You have to take your faith in Christ wholly, seriously, as a commitment that requires you to actively walk with him, hearing his warnings, being wooed by his love, and battling both your flesh and the world that would feed it. Grace Covenant Church, guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not betray your wife. Do not betray your husband. Do not profane God's sanctuary. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the love you have displayed to us. We thank you for being a perfect 
husband the way we are not. We confess that we have often been faithless in our marriages, faithless to our spouses, and we do ask that you would forgive us of this. We thank you for loving us enough to warn us, and we, I, we pray now that your spirit would move, that we would hear the warning in Malachi, that we would be refined and changed, that you would preserve us to the end, that we would know the fullness of your love as your bride. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.